0: This episode of Serverless Chats is sponsored by Dexsecure. This week, Rebecca and I chat with Lee Gilmore about tactical serverless. This is Serverless Chats, episode number 139. everyone i'm jeremy daly
1: and i'm rebecca marshburn
0: and this is serverless chats hey rebecca
1: hey jeremy it's good to see you again i feel like i just saw you yesterday
0: i think it was just yesterday that you saw me yes
1: oh wow well that's great and uh (laughs) it feels quite nice actually to be less than 24 hours later and here we are again i don't know if we have anything to talk about that's new do you have anything to talk about or should we just dive in
0: yeah, we might just need to dive in, and I think uh, we should dive in because uh, we have an extremely knowledgeable guest today uh, that is writing a lot of content, sharing a lot of content. But what I really like about this guest's content is it's not just, okay, here's a tutorial on how you set up, I don't know, here's how you set up streams on DynamoDB. Not that those tutorials aren't super helpful and are needed, but I think that that this guest, the the documentation and the, and, the, and the blogs that he writes are very much so expanding the knowledge of where serverless fits into the larger architectural patterns that we're already using in organizations, and and how you can bring those, how you can bring that serverless thinking and that serverless mindset into those organizations and apply them to very very common uh, patterns. So I don't know if you'd like to introduce him.
1: I would love to, and I'm also really excited to talk about that content because this person is known for I would say multi-parters of content. Our guest today is global serverless architect at City, Lee Gilmore. Hey Lee, thank you for joining us.
2: Hey, it's great to be here. Yeah, thanks for the invite.
1: Yeah. Will you tell the audience a bit about your role and what you do at City to kick us off?
2: Yeah, sounds good. So yeah, I'm Lee Gilmore. I'm a global serverless architect at City. So that's based across um, EMEA and the US. And what I'm currently doing is working with the teams on a big serverless transformation um, at an enterprise level. So yeah, very busy at the moment, lots going on, but it's it's very enjoyable.
0: Yeah, so, so in, I think it's really interesting to start seeing titles too, like global serverless architect. We just, I think we just started getting titles like cloud architect and some of these other things, but there is a very different mindset when it comes to serverless applications. Uh, and I think building cloud applications, again, you know, whether you're doing Kubernetes or doing any of these things, there's a lot of complexity that is there. And one of the things that we talk about a lot on this show, and I think we had Ant Stanley talk about this uh, before as well, is like it is pretty easy to grab a template for the CDK or grab a Hello World, um, you know, from from Serverless Framework or from SAM or whatever, and get that uh, that very simple Hello World up and running. And then even beyond that, a little bit of research, a little bit of time watching some videos, maybe reading some of your blog posts and so forth, people can get to that next step and they can maybe even get to the MVP. Maybe they're even using Amplify or something like that to get to it. But what I always find is, is that you get this really nice proof of concept, things are running, and then all of a sudden it's like, boom, you hit a wall because there is just so much that goes into that next step, which is really getting it to that you know, sort of you know, enterprise ready or production level. So I'd love to get your thoughts a little bit on that. You write a lot about this, but what are your thoughts on that complexity of of uh, productizing a serverless app versus you know, getting that original MVP up and running?
2: Yeah, so, so this is where I'm quite big on what I call the serverless stunning Kruger effect. And I think it's, you know, so easy for teams to spin up a salad stack, so you know, a React app or something in S3, an API layer with AppSync or API Gateway, Lambda, and something like DynamoDB. And within an hour, you could quickly get this put together, SLS deploy, you know, it's in the cloud and it's like, yes, you know, serverless is so easy. It's not, I think it's very hard. I think, you know, you're plugging together a lot of services. Each of those have their own complexities. They have their own config. So I think it's very easy to fall into the trap to think serverless is very, very easy. And that's where in a assert, you know, an enterprise level, I typically look at kind of three main areas to focus on as we kind of transition from traditional architectures to, you know, enterprise level serverless solutions. So they would typically be architectural layers. So how do we build? Um, in, in an enterprise, serverless applications, tech radar, so, you know, get some governance around the technologies that we use, get some kind of alignment, and non-functional requirements, so an approach I call tactical DDR.
1: I would love, when you first talked about what you're doing at City. you're talking also about, I always want to take a step back, you're talking about how you're leading some of the transformation towards serverless, and can you tell us a little bit about the backstory, right, like what was even the... It's not necessarily an easy decision to be like, okay, we're just going to go serverless. And so there's a lot of discussion, exploration, I'm sure debate that goes into what that means and what it will take to actually, it's not easy, like you said, to do that transformation and move in that direction. Can you tell us a bit about the, the pre-story, if you will, to get us to this place?
2: Yeah, sure. So, uh, you know, the original architecture that we've got has allowed the company to be very successful. But that kind of move from, you know, a monolith, um, with all the technologies and, a, and an older database, that's not going to serve maybe in the future as we scale out and, and kind of scale up. So in that regard, I think, you know, from the top down, it was very much serverless as the, the present and future of, of, of most production workloads. And it's going to give us the benefits, you know, quick agility, moving quickly, allowing us to prototype very quickly and then predictionize that and, and kind of push changes regularly in the production. So I think for all the right reasons, we're using serverless, but again, you know, around that, the, the teams have took time to build out POCs and learn uh, serverless, learn the complexities that you have. And, you know, we're at a stage now where other parts of the business and now moving to this serverless approach. And I think this is where, you know, you need to take people on that journey. There was a tweet by Elon Musk that said prototypes are easy, but production's hard and I, I think that's very much the case personally
0: no that that's definitely that's definitely true so you mentioned this idea of like you know you you have these people that are going through the journey that basically the maturity of serverless or the maturity of of the uh, adoption of serverless really only happens within an organization by having people experience it, right? You can't just say, we're going to adopt serverless tomorrow and then know everything that you have to know, right? So you write, you you mentioned this this serverless tactical approach, right? Or the serverless tactical DDR, and very much so complements this idea of the definition of ready and the definition of done that you that you write about. So I'm very curious about, I mean, I want to talk about this whole thing, right? And we can go wherever you want to go on this, because it's just super interesting. And again, the you have a you have a whole blog post on this, I think you might have a series on this. But essentially, the idea of as an organization starts to adopt serverless, like what are the things that they can do initially? How does that progress? When do you say, okay, this is a prototype that we can test, whatever? When do you say this is a prototype we can actually put into production? At least, you know, increase those that that maturity over time? Like what's that, what's that process look like and how do how do companies do that?
2: Yeah. So so for our company and using a kind of technical DDR approach, it's essentially looking at guardrails at the definition of ready stage. So as they pick up a ticket and, you know, they're looking at a feature, what kind of criteria, what things do we need to think about at that early stage before we start the way? And then as the team kind of progresses through, it comes to the kind of definition of done. So what standards need to be in place before we actually push this to production? And, you know, the things that make up tactical DDR are very much the things that I personally feel that teams don't think about. So that covers a multitude of things. So you've got, things like threat modeling a lot of teams don't think about threat modeling i know people like uh, sheen Brussels has done a fantastic uh, post on that which which really got me hooked into the kind of threat modeling and i think that just allows teams you know at the very start drawing out the architecture just having a look at it and kind of finding any holes in it as a group really fun sticking the architecture diagram on a mural board and quickly just adding on tickets, like traditional stride model, you know, looking at spoofing and and the repudiation and those kind of things. And even that at that kind of early stage allows you to kind of plug some of the gaps before it actually even starts work, you know, before the teams do any work whatsoever, but it also covers things like authorization. So again, very easy to push something into production, but have the team thought about how do we authenticate the APIs? Authorization, who should actually have access to that have, you know, I've seen in production, people use API keys and usage plans as the only kind of way of tying down those API endpoints. There's things like compliance. So a lot of teams don't think about PII. So, uh, personal identifiable information, GDPR, it's a, it's a massive consideration when we're building out and PCI DSS compliance. It covers things like testing. So do we have adequate testing? So end-to-end testing, unit testing, integration testing. it might be using synthetic canaries and, you know, having things running in production, which is pretty cool in the enterprise internationalization. So, you know, if we think about, um, especially for city, if we build a domain service, we want to be able to lift that and put it in a different locale. So have we thought about currencies and dates and, mm-hmm. you know, front end internationalization? Uh, that kind of thing. Nobody thinks about that though. <laughs> <laughs> they don't. Until somebody actually says, right, we need to drop this into a completely different country or out. Right. And then it's a ton of rework. So why not think about this at the very start? And I think that's where having this at the definition of ready stage just means people think about this as they pick up a ticket and there's things like caching, would this help having any kind of caching with regards to cost or latency? Again, this is usually something that happens when teams are struggling with, with one of those things, cost or increased latency for for the end uh, users and auditing, so again, this kind of feeds back into threat modeling a little bit, but can we tell who's doing what on the system? So, you know, have you got cloud trail enabled? Have you got versioning on buckets and, you know, kind of access logging? Can we say who's actually accessing anything? If we've got customers that are busy interacting with the system are we logging what they're actually doing for again non-repudiation so if they turn around and say no i definitely didn't click on that button you can see that actually did because you're logging it that kind of thing it also covers load testing so people think with serverless well you don't have to load test it i think that's definitely not the case because you know obviously your services might scale out very very quickly but downstream services might be affected by that so how do you have buffering in there with maybe SQS and, and, and kind of batch and that kind of thing, disaster recovery. Most people don't think about this um, with production workloads, but you know, with DynamoDB, if you've got point in time recovery, for example, what's your uh, RPO and RTO, these are things that again, with serverless, it's so quick to get things pushed out, but typically people don't think about it. It also covers documentation. So have we got open API and Swagger docs? Are we using event bridge schemas um, so we can document what an event looks like within a domain? And it also covers reporting. So as soon as you push something in production, you know, management are going to be asking you, how is it performing? You know, how do you allow teams to be data-driven? So a very quick run through with tactical DDR, but it's, that's the approach. So far, it's been useful for, for the teams I've worked with.
1: So that is a lot of truths and ideas to hold in your head at the same time, right? Anything from PII and GDPR to caching, to load testing, to performance testing. I can't even remember testing, all the things you to, said. There I know, so I'm trying things. to list it up. <laughs> I, I almost started writing it down. And I was like, no, I'll be able to list it. And then you kept going and I was like, oh my gosh, I should have started by <laughs> writing this down. But the, so that's so many things to hold at once. I'm wondering if, I imagine that you have a, you know, bullet, sub-bullet checklist, like have we done all these things? If you have that, is it somewhere shareable that people can access that checklist? And if not, where are the ways, where are some of the resources that you learned how to put this together, right? And how can teams start to think about their own checklist of what they need to consider if they're making a tactical DDR?
2: Yeah, so so I do have a GitHub repo which has a infographic which has the acronym and a little bit of a bullet point list against each of those to to kind of think about. But most of the teams that I've worked with, have took the items that have got definition of ready against them and and added those to tickets. So, you know, a standard template, it might be an Azure DevOps or, you know, wherever you, you, you're picking up those tickets and the same with definition of done, and you know, this isn't going to be applicable to really small changes. It might be a text change on a front end. Well, obviously these won't be applicable, but. You know, I think just having them there for maybe feature level, even at an epic level, when architects kind of start to have a look at this, it's worth just a quick glance through and at least, you know, you've covered the main areas that most people forget about because I've done a couple of polls on LinkedIn. And these are the things that just generally don't get thought about in in my experience.
0: Yeah, and I'm I'm curious too. I mean, again, you listed a lot of things. There's a lot of, and and I think Rebecca put it <laughs> put it well when she said bullets and sub bullets, right? Because there's a lot of little things, and as that checklist grows, and there's just more things that have to be done. And again, I get it. Not everything has to apply every time you launch some small thing. But I'm wondering how specialized team members need to be, how much they have to know about a lot of these individual things, right? So software development lifecycle and a lot of these, you know, broader, uh, you know, broader ideas around definition of ready and definition of done and so forth. Like these are things that I think teams eventually learn over time, but I'm curious about the very, the specifics, right? And the specialization of, you know, security in the cloud is tough. And I want to talk about serverless threat modeling in a minute, but security is tough. Even if you have all kinds of tools in place to do it, there's still things you have to think about app security is you just know, gotta be top of mind. You know, even just configuring resiliency we talked about you, know, you talked about uh, load balancing or you talked about uh load uh, testing right so load testing that's one of those things where what happens when uh this Lambda function the concurrency is met or what happens when events start dropping and they start sending to a queue what happens when a queue backs up and it can't process because there's um you know everything starts flooding a a, a, a dead letter queue or something like that like there's a lot to know in there beyond just you know going through and, and checking off the checklist so is that how specialized do people have to be? Do they have to be specialized? Do people need to be generalized uh, in this stuff? or as your teams grow, is is that something that you really should think about Is saying like we need people to specifically focus on these areas?
2: So that's a great question. So I'd say from my perspective, you know having sessions with the teams as an architect or an architect working across multiple product subdomains, I think working through something like tactical DDR. That means, you know, teams do start to understand that. And when you do serverless threat modeling, for example, and we're talking about, you know, have you got versioning on that bucket or have you got, is that API secured? I think just almost through osmosis, you know, teams start to kind of take this in, And next time you do a threat modeling session, those things have already been thought about in the design, like the initial design. So, but again, I think it's teams fall into the trap thinking serverless is easy and and it and it definitely isn't i mean as you know so yeah i think it's just a lot of education you know i do a lot of presentations at work and write a lot of blog articles and then sit with the teams and go through the whys for example recently talking to the team about lambda scaling up and talking to legacy databases and talking about connection management and you know uh, lambda scaling up quickly opening and closing connections cpu going up on the on the db and memory and you know, these are things that again teams don't typically think about. Right. So I don't know if I've answered your question there, because it, it it's maybe very difficult to It might you know, be it, it might be unanswerable
0: if that's a word. Yeah. I, I no, I think you're <laughs> I I mean I think that's that's right. I mean it, it's one of those things where it's over time. It's definitely education. That's the that's the big piece of it. And and piecemeal education is always tough too. So it's like, well, how do I do X? And then you go find a few blog posts or you read some documentation on it and then you learn that and that's fine. But if that's not applied to the larger or if it doesn't become part of that culture and part of the process, you know, then I can see those things quickly falling through the cracks.
2: Yeah. And, and I would say at an enterprise level, this is where building out reference architectures. Yeah. So you know, teams shouldn't be, you know, reinventing the wheel continuously and that kind of falls into the architecture layers, having a kind of platform there at the bottom things like differentiated heavy lifting. So, you know, serverless teams shouldn't have to worry about VPCs or transit gateways and that kind of thing. All of that networking should be done from like a developer experience perspective, allowing teams to to kind of use those reference architectures from a serverless perspective and, you know, bake in that kind of good practice and that security at, at an early stage. Hi everyone, I just want to take a
0: moment to thank our sponsor DeckSecure. Dexsecure empowers web developers by automating tasks that are essential for every website, freeing up developer time to focus on building. Dexsecure currently has three products to help your team. Their Web Asset Optimizer optimizes content like HTML, images, CSS, JavaScript, fonts, videos, and more. Their Third Party Optimizer takes care of all your third-party assets, and their Intelligent Network Optimizer enhances the performance and resiliency of your website. Dexecure also has an open source product called OpenDexecure, a cloud agnostic edge development framework. Now, what I love about OpenDex is that the developers can jump straight into product building and not worry about dealing with setup and all the other roadblocks that come from the complexity and configurations of other popular CDNs. If you're interested in trying Dexecure's products, you can for free. Just visit Dexsecure's website at Dexecure.com to sign up and learn more. That's D-E-X ecure dot com.
1: Let's talk about threat modeling because we've said it a few different times, and it's it's almost like something that you want to be thinking about. So it's baked in into all of the ways that teams are going to be developing something. But specifically, let's talk about you know how and why you should threat model. I think it's I want to say it's like almost self explanatory, but let's talk about it and then. And really um I think where Jeremy and I want to end up around this idea is that in the new era of serverless right you can quickly chain services together you can make super complex architectures you end up having to probably try to simplify them a bit into reference architectures that other teams can use and with the ability to build on serverless or to build quickly in any sense of the cloud right it's there's also the added downside of increasing the overall threat landscape and you have the added layer that serverless is quote unquote, relatively new. And so there are these threats that maybe have not yet been discovered, or maybe people are still getting educated around best practices compared to more traditional architectures where the threats are known, per se, or, you know, heavy air quotes on all known threats. And so let's talk a little bit more about this threat modeling. First, can you give us a quick like how and why? Like what goes wrong when you don't? And then some of this downside, right, of the threat landscape of serverless and how we should be thinking about it.
2: Yeah, so I think the, the biggest benefit of doing threat modeling is quite often what I see is teams missing certain things. You know, we talked about, you know, access logs, for example, on S3, or have you got Cloud Trail enabled? And, you know, if teams don't think about this, as soon as a, a security incident, that's when, you know, you wish you had these things, or it could be an API that's only tied down with an API key and not using the Cognito, for example, or. What I typically do is just work with the teams on that initial architecture, just to, you know, it should be fun. It should just be, you know, 40 minutes admin the mirror boards. So we can all just add tickets on at the same time. Um, little post-it notes and nothing's too silly either. It could be things like internal actors, you know, what happens if somebody off boards and leaves the company, but you haven't actually removed them from AD, say Can they still access, you know, internal services? Do they have access to things they shouldn't have access to, including data. So this is typically why I kind of work with the teams on on looking at that.
0: Now, I'm curious um, from your perspective though, I mean, we talk a lot about the shared security model and you know, just the things that AWS does. There's a great, uh, and Ori Sagal used to do this really, really well in all his presentations where he would basically show, here's the shared security model for VMs and for containers. And then here's the shared security model for serverless. And there were so many more things that you didn't have to think about when you were building serverless, right? So things like even patching, you know, like the Spectre and whatever, right? Like that was taken care of for you before you even heard about it, your Lambda functions were already patched, right? And then of course there's this ongoing thing where each each service that you use, DynamoDB, keeps getting better, right? It gets faster, it has more features, things get added. Same thing with AppSync, more levers and switches show up in in Lambda functions and the different event mappings and things like that. As that progresses and as that goes, clearly there is a huge benefit that is taken off of your shoulders when it comes to you know, or you get this this huge weight taken off your shoulders with some of these risks. But some of these risks still exist. So just in terms of when you're doing threat modeling and when you're looking at this, what are the biggest ones? Like what are the biggest things that you say? You know, if I had to choose one thing that I could make sure was was secure, or that I was I was really paying attention to with my serverless applications, what would that what would that be?
2: I'd probably say just ensuring that, and and this sounds sounds silly, but I've seen this so many times in production workloads. But our APIs actually tied down because a lot of the time people just don't think about it, or it could be that your federated um, your authentication with AD that's purely for the authentication, but nothing around authorization. So, you know, it could be an internal application around finance, but somebody in the warehouse, because they've got an active login, yeah. and because they're part of the company, because the authorization's not done, they have access, so it could be the cleaner, it could be the CTO, it could be anybody, um, just because you actually have the authentication side of it. So, again, I've seen that quite a few times where the authorization aspect, you know, Taking that principal ID from the token and actually having some kind of lookup within the domain service, that's just not there. So, so definitely around authorization, I would say. And, and same goes with people off-border. You know, that's something that most teams, in, in my experience, forget about.
0: So beyond just serverless, locking down your APIs is just good practice at all. But like in terms of specific serverless things, I mean, you, you, you get functions that are that are infinitely scalable, let's say, right? So we always hear about a denial of wallet attacks and things like that, though we've never seen any, we've never seen that actually happen, uh, at least to, yeah. to my knowledge, I, I've never seen it. But you also have things like, you know, shadow APIs, right? Like just things like that, where people keep publishing API gateways and publishing endpoints, and then they don't tear down the stack, right? So you might have hundreds of APIs out there that could access internal data, could be running old code, Oftentimes I see that those shadow APIs run old shared code that that wasn't patched, right? Because again, you make a change to shared code. Most people aren't using layers and updating their layers, you know, every time there's a, a deployment. So you get a lot of this old stuff in there. So I'm just curious, I mean, again, I, I'm only pushing you on this because I know you know more here and we, we want to extract this from our guests. But I mean, serverless specific, right? Are there things specifically for serverless beyond best practices around security in general? But anything in serverless specifically that is something that, that you think people might need to look out for?
2: So so one thing you mentioned there was the, the denial of wallet attacks. So a lot of teams don't think about adding reserve concurrency onto what could be just a health check-in point, for example, you know, somebody hits that, they've got an active token and they hit that hundred thousand times a second, something silly like that. That's obviously going to use up all of your lambdas um, within your account. Not then affecting production workloads. It's, you know, it, it's essentially throttling everything that you've got. So I don't see a lot of teams using reserve concurrency for that, for that reason. But definitely if I've got an internal application used by a handful of people, I would definitely have reserve concurrency onto those uh, endpoints, regardless of being internal or external, I guess.
1: So you're talking about, you know, and I appreciate you, Jeremy, for having done this uh, as well, where you're like, Lee, I know you know more. Like (laughs) the word extract is a funny word to use, but thank you, Lee, for letting Jeremy extract that from you. It's not an interview. This
0: is an interrogation. (laughs) Yeah.
1: yeah. (laughs) In terms of, you know, general security best practices and then even more specific things you can do to and for when building with serverless. And then there's this other thing that you're passionate about, right, is architecture layers. And I think that these two things are going to be interrelated, right? If the way that we think about architecture layers is also needs to feed into or needs to play nicely with the way that we think about security and securing each of those layers, So will you dive into this a little bit? Because you actually explained it to Jeremy and I before we were recording quite well. And I don't want to take those words out of your mouth.
2: Okay, cool. Yeah, so this is something I'm quite passionate about. And this all kind of stems from, again, going back to the kind of Serbliston and Kruger effect. It's so easy just for teams within their kind of silos and very much Conway's law, just developing within their own, like I say, silo. And what that happened, like what happens off the back of that is things like business logic is not reusable. It's not in the right place. People haven't thought about cross cutting layers. Um, so cross cutting concerns, things like develop experience and, and kind of platforms, so it covers five main layers. And um, the first one's the experience layer. So that could be Alexa apps. It could be mobile um, websites, you know, anything like that. And these shouldn't really have any business logic within them. Uh, these should be you know back-end for front-end APIs, very thin. The only logic that would be in there is kind of synonymous with what it is. So if it's an Alexa app, it might have code in there around doing that integration with Alexa. But that just means that you know domain logic, which is in a domain layer, is then reusable. So I typically go, you know, with my teams who talk about order tracking. So if that order tracking business logic was in the Alexa app. Then the mobile app can't use it and, you know, the, the website can't use it. So having that domain logic within a well-encapsulated domain, and that's, you know, private, not accessible on kind of layer seven, you can't curl it or use Postman well-encapsulated. It's got a versioned API on there. It might be for asynchronous calls. It might be using EventBridge. So it's got again, versioned um, event schemas. So that would be the, the platform layer within there. And then you've got the cross cutting layer. So things like logging observability, things that you don't want every single team having to think about, and how do you do that at an enterprise level? So I'm quite big on, on that as well. And that covers things like authentication as well. How are you doing authentication between your back-end or front-end APIs and your domain APIs? So, you know, it could be a client credentials grant flow with open connect, you know, again very secure talking about uh, security and and kind of threat modeling. Then you've got the data layer. So for me, one thing I'm very big on is using EventBridge as that enterprise service bus, and that then allows obviously your domains to, to communicate asynchronously based on, on events. But that could also include things like data lakes, BI reporting, and things again, that you want to think about at that kind of enterprise level. I guess what you don't want is one team using MSK, one team using RabbitMQ and, you know, no standardized way of actually communicating across domains. And, you know, if you've got 40 teams, you know, this is why you need that kind of governance, I feel like, around that. And then the the kind of bottom layer, there's the platform layer. Um, So that's the, like I said before, the differentiated heavy lifting. So we don't want every single team thinking about VPCs and kinds of gateways, that kind of thing. How can teams very quickly spin that up with a click of a button? It's a brand new domain or product. So I think that's very important, but also developer experience. So if we're talking about OpenID Connect and client credentials, grant flow, how do you allow developers very quickly to say, you know, I've got this resource server, I've got a client. I want to give it these particular scopes, you know, because for me, again, that authorization should be in a shared AWS account. Um, like a shared tools account, almost it should have a SLA around it and a team around it. And I guess these are the things that thinking at at that enterprise level, this is where you've kind of got the three things of tactical DDR, you know, how are we building things, architecture layers, how we, how we build them in the right way, then looking at the technologies that we use. So doing a tech radar, so created by a company called ThoughtWorks, which is, is very useful.
0: Yeah so i mean the so i love i love the uh, breaking those layers down and also thinking about you know where that ties into uh, maybe domain driven design for the different domains we've had a lot of guests that have talked about this before too and just this idea of like common language and so forth like an order tracking for one Domain might actually mean something different for another domain, right? So order tracking in the warehouse might be different than order tracking on the website or an order ID might mean something different or whatever. And and having that language sort of encapsulated in that business logic is, uh, or in that domain logic is super important. I also, you know, you make a really, really good point. If you have an Alexa app that is, you know, allowing you to check your order status and that has to do some sort of business logic in order to make that work that's specific to a domain... Then you're just rewriting that across all of your different experience layers right and so you don't have that reuse there the interesting thing you mentioned about the data layer so that i think there's two ways to think of the data layer and maybe i'd just love to hear your thoughts on this so within your domain logic within an individual microservice or individual domain my assumption i guess that my contention would always be that you want to have data specific to that domain in that specific uh, microservice, or within that you know uh, bounded context, but I think what you mean by the data layer is sort of the way that data is shared and aggregated across these different services.
2: Exactly, uh, and like you say, you want each of your domains to have you know polyglot databases that you know should be the specific requirements of of that domain. But I guess having that enterprise service bus in there. That allows you to listen to events and start building your own read stores. So again, keeping things loosely coupled, you could be, say the order domain and you're listening to stock events because you want to build up your own read store within the orders domain. So you don't have that tight coupling with the stock domain. Probably a bad example because you want that to be up to date, I guess, but that kind of premise where, you know, that's what it's allowing you to do and stitching all that data together as well for reporting or BI language is how good at
1: so a pastime that people may or may not know about me by now is that i like to read our guests recent tweets and then sometimes we call bring it, them we up. call
0: it stalking but that's, that's our some people no, call it stalking
1: people just call that twitter now <laughs> that's
2: right <laughs> uh
1: how I, i'm sorry that i use twitter as twitter and i read recent tweets of guests um <laughs> sorry not sorry but I really liked what you had tweeted recently, May 13th, 8.06 a.m. No, I'm kidding. I don't know, actually. It is May 13th, but I don't know what time it was. And you talked about your AWS wish list. And so I wanted to bring this up here because I would love for you to talk through what inspired it. And then, like, talk us through what the wish is of this wish list in a little bit more detail, I guess. So you say, my hashtag, AWS wishlist dash. For enterprise organizations, a service that allows you to share your versioned open API definitions for API Gateway and Event Bridge in one place tied down by OIDC, allowing internal domain platform teams to discover integration details as well as external customers.
2: Yeah, so what this was about basically is within that enterprise, again, going back to that order and, and stock domain example, you know, making it easy for teams um, from a developer experience point of view to say what does that up-to-date version schema look like um, without actually reaching out to that team? So I guess having a centralized service or place where you could go to you could list out your domains or your products, um, however your business is kind of set out. And that would allow you just to view any events from the uh, schema registry of the event bridge that is synonymous with that domain or platform. And the same with the, the APIs as well, because again, for me, they should be very easy for teams to do. And I uh, found in enterprise, obviously, with a lot of different APIs and a lot of different teams, that becomes a lot of communication, a lot of emails back and forward, a lot of Slack uh, messages. So I think just an easy way of encapsulating that in one place, I guess. But there are there are other services I'd, <laughs> that I would definitely love to see as well.
0: Well, that's, that's what I was going to ask you, um, speaking of uh, AWS wish list, so we actually asked Werner Vogels this, we said, what's missing, right? What can, what is the next step for serverless? What's the next major event bridge or step functions or app sync? Like, is there something major that we're missing or is it, are we just at the point of incremental, uh, I guess, expansion or improvement?
2: Yeah. I think the, the biggest things that I think are missing personally would be serverless open search
1: and mm. that'd be,
2: um, pretty cool and serverless document DB. Um, so I've wrote quite a few blog posts around connection management with with DocDB and and Lambda scaling out and different ways of doing that. But I think those two things will be the the kind of cherry on the top of the serverless services uh, personally.
0: I, I've been saying forever, like every, every reinvent, I'm like, All right, serverless uh, Elasticsearch or serverless search or whatever, like that's going to happen this year, right? Like. Uh... Yeah, that's, uh, that's tough. And then, you're right, the, the connection model still with Lambda functions, I know RDS proxy is a, is a good solution when connecting to Aurora and RDS, but MongoDB and some of these other ones that do also require, uh, you know, connection management there, depending on how you connect to them, uh, those would be those would be helpful to have a really nice solution to that as well.
1: I do love how wishlists often come out of, like wishlist is a nice term, but it usually comes out of some form of user pain right? Where you're like, ah, oh, I wish I could. It's not like, ah, oh, wish list. It's like, man, I wish I could do this because I am slightly suffering right now.
0: <laughs> the, my frustration um, list, maybe?
1: <laughs> yeah, my frustration <laughs> list. So it's a good, I'm um, as someone who um, enjoys language and marketing, it's a good marketing, uh, yeah, instead of calling it like, my why list it's like oh it's your wish list isn't that nice <laughs> so lee you you create such a breadth and depth a wealth of content and you share this out through blogs all sorts of ways but your blogs are um i would say they're like tomes it's like it's a it's a special experience to be led through um the blog posts that you write um so let's talk a little bit about your like creation process right like how do you in the same way where you had aws wish list and you're like i wish that there was you know, X, y, or Z, how do you decide even what you want to write about? And then what's your process for, for writing and then, and then sharing them out?
2: So, so the the kind of inspiration side of, you know, what I do the blog posts on is typically, you know, I'll be working with a team and they're struggling with a particular area. So it could be caching or, you know, could be something around, around that kind of area. And if they're struggling with it, then probably other people are, are struggling. And again, we talked about the, the complexities of serverless and, what I typically do is create a repo alongside it um, either serverless framework or, or CDK, but something tangible for somebody to very quickly deploy it, have a play around with it, reading the article at the same time and having a look at some code snippets and, you know, I like to do a lot of visuals in there because I'm you know, personally, I'm a very visual learner. So if something's really called out like that, I find it, find it very easy to kind of take the concepts on board. So that's why I do it typically. So I've got a a big list of articles that still need to write. So there must be about 20 on there currently, but yeah, I think it's just, how can you help people very, very quickly? And sometimes I'll, you know, I'll have some kind of analogy or some kind of fake business with usually a fake logo and things like that. I did a, a, what is serverless with like a taxi example, again, kind of talking about shared responsibility and that kind of thing, but how do you make it easy for people that kind of pick this up and, and have a bit of a play around with and, and get that concept.
1: So you said that you have a running list. I think that's, it's for especially for someone who loves to write you, probably that list will never get smaller. It'll only get longer. But curious, what's at the top of your list? What's like one, two or three that you're like, I'm lo- I'm. I'm itching to write this?
2: So looking at the list at the moment, so I've got changed uh, change data capture on there. So how do you do things like using the transactional outbox pattern and Use change data capture to take data from one system to to another. I've got storage first APIs, um, L3 constructs, location services, WebSocket subscriptions, AppSync off. And there's just a huge list of things that, you know, I've just never had the chance to write an article on, but uh, hopefully right. they're, they're going to be useful, if you
0: well, one of the things you you mentioned that's a great list and and I'm sure people will will really appreciate you writing those things, but one of the things that we always try to encourage people to because you mentioned this and it's part of the reason why you do this is because you notice a team having a problem with this or somebody struggling with this and then you just figure somebody else is probably struggling with this too. Uh, and one of the things that I, I we hear this all the time, especially I hear this from people who are like, "Well, oh, I don't know if I should write this down because there's already a blog post kind of like this and whatever." And my advice to them is always like, just write it. Like, just put it out there. If you think you've figured out something or you've had an experience, sharing your experience can, can really help somebody else. Even if somebody else had a similar experience, your your presentation of the experience may be different, and it may click better with them. And I'm just curious, what your advice would be to other writers? That I mean, again, as a, pro, a prolific writer as you are, is there is there some advice you might give other writers uh, in terms of how they how they can you know either come up with ideas or you know just get started with 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 blogging and, and things like that?
2: Yeah, I think the first step is obviously it's scary kind of building in public and open yourself, you know, you're opening yourself up to criticism and, you know, um, that kind of thing. But I think it's just about helping the community. I mean, the serverless community is fantastic as a whole, which obviously, you know, and being a community builder, you see the, the breadth of articles that people write it is just absolutely fantastic, but I think just go for it. It's not small, you know, just write a small article on something you're doing and, you know, just get it out there, put it on LinkedIn or Twitter or something like that, but I think it's just taking that first step and then any building upon that over time. Amazing.
0: All right. Well, Lee, we are out of time, but this was amazing. Uh, and I think that, uh, I, I think there's a lot for listeners to get out of this, but if they want to learn even more and they want to read all these articles you do or, or, you know, be able to you know uh, creep you on Twitter and and uh, follow your AWS wish list <laughs> or AWS or get wishlist. your
1: really 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 long checklist for uh, I mean that's that thing is gold the checklist for like figuring out bullet sub bullet yeah
0: right Where right they so find you? how how do people find you
2: yeah so if you do a search for uh, Lee James Gilmore and Serverless um, on Google is yeah, quite a few articles there. So I'm on Medium. I'm on LinkedIn. So people can can reach out. I love connecting with people and and chatting all things serverless. And that's got links to GitHub and, and things like that.
1: Well, that's excellent. And just in case people want a really short, like, you know, A to B shortcut, you're, he's also on GitHub at Lee Gilmore Code. Because I think that list is going to be total gold. So I'm going to go ahead and save that out loud here. We'll get that all in the show notes. So anyone listening can also click on those links. And Lee, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Awesome, thanks for having us. Thank you.
0: And that's this week's serverless chat. Rebecca and I wanna give a huge thank you to Lee Gilmore for being our guest this week and to our sponsor, DexSecure. If you wanna check out the show notes and a full transcript of this episode, you can find them at serverlesschats.com 139. For more serverless chat, subscribe, sign up to be an insider, check us out on YouTube and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can connect with Rebecca on Twitter at Becca Odale, and me at Jeremy underscore daily. And if you want to keep up to date with everything serverless, make sure you subscribe to the Off by None newsletter at offbynone.io. Thank you so much for joining us. And we look forward to chatting with all of you again next week.